I say I checked out mentally, I just became a depressive, angry wreck. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're, you're going to a funeral I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the trouble like She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line in collaboration with StoryWrite, dedicated to empowering veterans, one story at a time. In today's podcast, we meet Oliver Andrews, a former cavalryman in the Australian Army who served in the Solomon Islands before discharging from full-time service last year. Oliver has a story of psychological strength and commitment to community that he'll share with us today. Oliver, thanks for joining us on Life on the Line. No worries. Thanks for having me, Sharon. So tell us a bit about where your army career began. I mean, did you have military people in your family when you were growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in a family of three. I was an only child. My dad served briefly in the the Navy, but the main sense of service came from his cousin who grew up like a brother to him, who served for 35, 40 years across regular army and reserves. He served in Malaya and Borneo all the way back then during the Indonesian crisis, I think they called it. And in his stories, he would always tell stories of the army whenever we got together, everything like that. And it just had that real sense of, it filled me with awe and a bit of, I guess, curiosity and pride that someone could go out and do all that sort of stuff. And that sort of trickled down through to me when sort of I joined the reserves on a whim. I was just sitting in front of my computer one day and went, you know, I'm actually going to give that a crack. The worst I can say is no. Uh, nine years later, and I discharged from having a fairly decent career that was trying at times, but really fulfilling. You talked about the fact as a child that you were exposed to these kinds of, you know, very positive and inspiring images of serving in the Australian Defence Force. Tell us a bit more about that. I mean, were you always a regular at Anzac Day services? I mean, was it something that was really important to you? Yeah, from a very young age. I grew up in Renmark, which is a small country town about 250 kilometres northeast of Adelaide. and for as long as I can remember, I went to their Anzac Day March, watched it get smaller. And then I remember I had to come to Adelaide one year for something that coincided with the Anzac Day March down here. And that was like the highlight of that weekend for me was actually getting to go to the Adelaide Anzac Day March instead of watching it on TV. Yeah, so that was really formative for me in those years. So tell us about what that experience was like for you then. I mean, you talk about coming to Adelaide and this being the highlight of your trip. I mean, what was it about Anzac Day that really resonated for you? That's a really good question. I think it just boiled down to seeing these guys that had that bigger sense of self and service and they'd gone away and done these remarkable things for the greater good, I guess, using to use a cliche. And just the pride that everybody like the spectators showed and these guys who put themselves out there to march on Anzac days and the respect that they got from that just intrigued me. You talk about that sense of service and the importance of of thinking about a commitment to country beyond oneself. 
Was that something then that you wanted to then go and do? Did that attendance at Anzac Day services growing up really inspire in you that this need to to follow in their footsteps in some way? Yes and no. I didn't realise it at the time. So I finished my schooling. I moved to Adelaide by that time to finish year 12. Started uni and realised it wasn't the path that I really wanted to go down at that time. And then when I was about 21, as I said, I went, what's the worst DFR can say? Applied to join the Army Reserve, got in, awesome time, awesome four years, and then really thought, you know, I actually want to make a career of this and actually get some experience. And then I transferred across to full time. The Army Reserve, you were a member of, of one of the most historic units actually in South Australia, the 3rd, 9th Light Horse uh, South Australian Mounted Rifles. Tell us a bit more about that unit. I was. So I had a few family connections to that. My dad's cousin, as who I spoke of earlier, he was a former OC down there. And my grandfather on my dad's side had actually served with them. I know my grandfather was in World War II. I'm not quite sure what he did, but then he came back to Australia and was part of 3rd, 9th. And he did a lot of work up through the Northern Territory with building the overland telegraph pole, like telegraph ones and everything. And that particular unit, very much a proud unit. I mean, the people that have ever been a member of Third Ninth, it's something they talk about throughout their entire lives, even when they're no longer serving in the unit. Yeah, and I think that also comes down to the cavalry mentality as well, being just, I guess, the cavalry arrogance of just being that little bit better than everyone else as well. So it's definitely one of the proudest units and I still look very fondly upon my time. Let's backtrack for a moment back to when you first presented to Defence Force Recruiting to DFR. How come did you end up going down that cavalryman stream? You know, why was that the core that you were assigned to? I think it just came, I chose that as one of my top preferences just because of that family connection and I really wanted to experience what my forebears had experienced. Yeah, there was no other real reason apart from that. I mean, I'd had some mates who'd served with 1027, the Reserve Infantry for South Australia, who were trying to push me down that path, but it was pretty much going to be third, ninth or nothing for me. Why was that? What was it about being a cavalryman that was so appealing to you? I guess I'd seen photos of my grandpa, you know, looking all dashing in his service dress with the plumes and the hat, and it was just that little little point of difference. And I guess it's instilled into us right through the training and everything that we're the masters of, or we're the Army's mounted warfare experts. And it sort of comes down to being able to do basic infantry tasks, as well as all the vehicle husbandry and having the capacity to crew and work an armored fighting vehicle at the same time. Talk us through that in a bit more detail, because for people who listen to life on the line from a civilian background, they wouldn't be familiar with what you mean by the vehicle husbandry and, and really the skills that are required to do that job. So what's the typical day in the life of a cavalryman? So for a full-time cavalryman, I guess it was very much focused around looking after your vehicles. The vehicles come first. It goes back to the days of the light horse in World War One, where you looked after your horse because that's how you got everywhere. That's what took you into battle. And that's, that was your main form of transport. You know, it needed to be fed. It needed to be watered. So we look at our vehicles in very much similar light. So the Aslabs or the MM13s that I was driving, they very much come first. It's, you know, it's the vehicles. You've got to maintain them when you're outfield and when you're in barracks, then yourself and then, or your weapons and then yourself. That's an interesting hierarchy, isn't it? So vehicles come first then your weapon, then yourself. How does one make the change required psychologically to think in that way? Because it must be a transition that you have to go through to, to learn to put yourself bottom of that list. Yeah, I think that's something that comes with all the training that it's just instilled to us. Like It's very regimented that, especially through when I went through my full-time training, 
it was very much you'll do it this way and the baby steps that came first so we learned the basic infantry tasks and all the weapon systems in the first six weeks then i moved on to the communication side of things and then finally we got to the the highest point we could in the training part which was actually learning the vehicle craft and learning the vehicle systems which the way it was structured was that that was the cream of the crop once you got there you'd made it as a cavalryman in training before you got posted out i guess through that process they sort of already had put the vehicles on that that level like that higher plane of existence that was something to be respected so and then they drilled down into that more like through your driving and servicing phase of training like just really looking after the vehicles and in all the field exercises that we did through that it was very much vehicle first vehicle first vehicle first and it didn't matter that you're in a crew of four people you each had to each trainee had to put their time in and do the vehicle maintenance because i went through when it was fairly wet in the victorian highlands and we basically took turns and being the one to go under the car and grease all the points under there and come out looking like a bunyip pretty much so looking like a bunyip so that's part of the job it can be i mean being a driver was probably one of the most rewarding but one of the most filthy times you could have like i remember the first time that i had to deal with an aslav outfield and they are notorious for being maintenance hogs and the drivers of them just get filthy my background up to that point had been dealing with m113s which are a much cleaner a much nicer easier vehicle to live and work with yeah and i came back from servicing this aslav looking like i had been outfield for a month in a carrier and i'd been out there for maybe a day was there a transition required for you to get used to living that way, being quite so filthy as you describe it? Any soldier will know what living in, in the field's like. You just sort of get along with it. You realise you're not going to have a shower every day. You realise you're not going to have a hot meal every day. And I guess I just took it as part of the job. Like I realised that this is what it entails. This is, I've got to do the hard yards before I can get the good stuff. And I imagine in some ways it must be quite a bonding experience when there's a whole bunch of guys and girls sort of outfield for long periods of time I mean you must really get to know each other well kind of living in those somewhat austere conditions you do and sort of nothing becomes off limit nothing becomes sacred I guess out there you I've got many a stories that I probably can't tell over this but you just sort of look at it and go oh well that happened we've all been there there must be one story though that you can share with us the one that comes to mind is one from over at Puck of Punyal, which is in the Victorian Highlands, and it was absolutely pouring down with rain. I was busting for a, to go to the toilet. We'd just come back from doing some a task away from the platoon harbour. So I basically grabbed my entrenching tool and legged it for the first tree that I could see. Little did I know that as I was in the middle of doing my business, the whole hillside erupted in a bit of laughter and cheers. And then I realized that the tree that I'd picked was pretty much right in line with one of the section's defensive positions and they had prime seats to everything. So they'd witnessed the entire sorry affair? Yeah, pretty much from me legging it to the follow through and then legging it back being like, oh shit. Yeah. I can imagine though when you're outfield, I mean, those kinds of incidents, they must be pretty common. Yeah, and they were even more common with the vehicles, especially because we had thermal sights and all the night vision sights. The sights that you could see through that, especially if you're working with the infantry, were you could get a good laugh out of them. Now, after you'd been in a few years, you had the opportunity to deploy. Tell us a bit more about that, how it came about. I'd been in the reserve at this point for about, I think it was two years, I think it was. And I just got tapped on the shoulder and asked, hey, there's a Operation Anode trip coming up, which is the deployment to the Solomon Islands, which was for reservists at that time, pretty much the only thing going. Am I old squadron sergeant major just pretty much tapped me on the shoulder and do you want a chance to go and i was like yeah i snapped at the chance and then i knew i was on the manning and then it was just all systems go for us 
And what do you remember about the nature of your mission at that time? What was it that you were sent out there to do? So we were part of the regional assistance mission for the Solomon Islands, which was a joint peacekeeping task force between New Zealand, Pacific Island nations and Australia, basically helping the rebuild the infrastructure of the Solomon Islands. The overarching idea was that we were to assist in policing operations on the island. However, about two weeks after we got in country, that changed to, I guess, more of a support mission. So it didn't leave a lot for us to do from day to day, but we were still there in case of anything. And we still had a couple of other objectives of patrolling some of the outlying islands and just doing some community engagement work with that and other things. What were your first impressions, though, when you first arrived in the Solomon Islands? I mean, this must have been for you to some extent, not just an adventure, but a bit of a trip of a lifetime in some respects. I still remember it fondly to this day, and I can still remember the sights and sounds and smells of getting off the Herc in the stifling tropical heat and just getting onto the tarmac there and just going, holy shit, I'm on, my, I'm on a deployment. I've actually achieved one of the goals that I wanted to achieve out of my military service. And what was that feeling like? Yeah, quite exciting, although I tried not to show it at the time when we were on the ground, but probably a mixture of excitement and disbelief like that, holy shit, I'm actually here. Because for people outside of the military, this is something that they might find difficult to understand. So why is it that for cavalrymen at your stage of your career at that time, why was it so important to you to go on a deployment and put yourself in harm's way? I guess... I'll relate it back to some conversations I've had with civvy mates and everything since I've left. And a lot of them, like when they find out I was in the army, they ask, did you go to Afghanistan or Iraq? And I say, no, unfortunately. And I think that really captures like the whole essence in just that, those two words, simply because we are an organization that trains for deployments and war. For us, it's the ultimate test of our professionalism to be able to go over somewhere and employ our tradecraft in those situations. Whereas civilians seem to say, oh, fortunately you didn't go there, but they don't understand that, I guess, it's the same analogy as a professional football player not getting to play in an actual AFL game. They just spend their life training and training and training. It kind of becomes pointless after a while and you can't, everybody wants to see if they've got what it takes. And did you have what it takes? I'd like to think I did. Was there a moment when you're in the Solomon Islands, other than that moment when you thought, holy shit, I'm here on deployment, as you described. Was there any other moments when you thought, I'm really stepping up here and I really am proving to myself what I can do? The whole trip for me was just a really good exercise in both personal and professional development for me. Out of that trip, I grew as a person. I came back to Australia more confident, more knowing what I could do, what I could take. And professionally, because at the time that we I went, there was not much in the way for reservists to do. It was seen as sort of the holy grail, unless you were lucky enough to be in a position that you could go to Afghanistan or Iraq, filling in with one of the full-time units, which was like the ultimate creme de la creme. Like if you could do that, you were a god amongst reservists. Yeah, Solomon's was the next one down from that in terms of being able to test your tradecraft and, and I guess have that respect amongst your peers. What were you doing then on a day-to-day basis while you were deployed? Lots and lots of training. Then towards, I think it was the middle middle of the end of the deployment we went, we did a couple of off-island patrols, which was basically, there were some islands that hadn't been, no one from Ramsey had been to in quite a while. So we had to go out there and just basically fact find and make sure that everything was still functioning. A lot of sort of infrastructure development and stuff like that. No real war fighting as such. So... I think we spent two weeks in total just walking with packs on. 
through the jungle. I still think that was one of the worst nights of sleep I'd ever had in the, out there. We'd stopped for the night in this little sort of alcove and it was, it was dry, not a cloud in the sky. And then to about halfway through the night, we woke up and we could hear this rustling and it was getting closer, getting closer. And we're just like, what is that? And it turns out it was like the tropical rain coming through. And then we all just went, shit. And I remember the next morning waking up in about an inch of water in the bottom of my sleeping bag cover and everything. Everything was just soaked to the bone. And that was still pretty much one of the most uncomfortable nights I've ever had. Did you actually sleep at all? A little bit. We'd stomped probably a good 15 or 20 k's up and down through mountains, through jungle to get to this rest point, And I was pretty shagged by the end of it. How would you describe being deployed in a jungle environment? Because that in itself is, is a unique experience. Hot, sweaty, and unrelenting just heat and humidity. Like You hear people say you could drink the air. I didn't really, really realise what that meant until I got over there. But I think it was really funny towards the end of my deployment, the next rotation, when they came in and we had a period of handover takeover, I had a couple of mates on that rotation that came in. And I distinctly remember getting told that they were here. So I walked outside to meet them and I went, oh, it's a bit of a cold night tonight. And it was still about 28 degrees and a million percent humidity. And they're all sitting there, sweat dripping off them going, this is really bad. This is so hot. How do you deal with them? I'm like, this is actually the coolest night we've had in about a month. You'd obviously uh, acclimatise them by that point. Yeah. Yeah, quite a lot. And it actually surprised me because we'd been living and breathing it for about four months at that point and it was just, yeah, it was just the day-to-day life. Did you ever have the sense, though, that you were in a conflict zone? Because it sounds like from the work you were doing that you weren't necessarily exposed to danger, even though danger would have been part of the job. Yeah, that's exactly right. And all through our rehearsals, our mission readiness exercises and everything, we had trained for the worst case So we worked very closely with the Australian Federal Police's tactical team that was over there as well. They came in a pre-deployment training for a period and basically taught us some the ways that they operate so we could better integrate. But through talking to those guys who had been there at the start of what was called the Troubles, the danger was sort of, it was just simmering under the surface. And there there were still a few incidents of guys getting mugged and stuff in the local marketplaces and like in the main street of Honiara. But compared to that of the outlying islands, it was a lot more peaceful and a lot more calm out there. But in the capital, it certainly was still a little bit tinderbox waiting to go up sort of thing. And what was that like being exposed to that? Because, again, for people listening to this program that have not had military experience, what is it like living day in, day out with that sense of uncertainty, insecurity, and indeed a sense of threat? For us, it wasn't. I guess for me, it wasn't so bad because we were inside a secure compound. Like We weren't out and amongst it every day. So within our compound, we felt relatively safe and secure. It was just more once you stepped out while it was appearing peaceful and everything, you always knew that there was going to be a riot. You know, there could be a riot just around the corner or you know, someone at the local marketplace might look at one of the vendors the wrong way, ended up getting stabbed and then inciting a riot after that. There was one riot that we had when I was over there we didn't have to attend to it, but it sort of came very close was that something had happened involving the son of the then prime minister and he'd either injured someone or had killed someone. I can't remember the exact details, but under their tribal system, they, the aggrieved party can seek reparations from the person who did wrong to them. 
And so there was quite a tense standoff outside his house with the family of the injured man and himself going, no, I'm not going to pay you and everything like that. So we were on alert for that for probably about half a day. And what was that like? I mean, was it, did you see that as a genuine threat or was it just sort of part of the job? Part of me was hopeful that we would get called out just again to be able to, I guess, validate our training and just have that test of our professionalism again. But alas, it wasn't to be, so that never ended up happening. But part of me hoped for that. The other part of me was just took it in the stride and it was just part of doing the job over there. Let's fast forward now to when you came home. How long had you been away for? So we'd been in country for, I think it was four months with about two months of lead up training prior to that. So I hadn't really seen my girlfriend, that or my then girlfriend for about six months. How did you find that separation? I got hard towards the end of the deployment for sure because she started getting the feeling that I wasn't going to be coming home and there wasn't an end in sight when in reality it was only sort of another four, four or five weeks away. I know that she started to really struggle towards the end. But you did come home and then what happened for your career after that? Yeah, so after the deployment, I thought, I guess I enjoyed it enough that I wanted to tra- uh, step up and play with the big boys, I guess you could say. So so we got back in August 2012. By about October, I'd put in my transfer papers for to transfer across to the regular army. And then that took about a year of toing and froing. And then my training sergeant rang me. I can still remember the time I was sitting in our na- like bare living room because we just sold all our furniture because we were just getting some new stuff. In and I was literally sitting on a beanbag with my laptop doing some work. My training sergeant rang and pretty much said, what are you doing on this date? I'm like, nothing. Why? And he's like, oh, you're going to, you're going to park it to start your training. I was like, awesome. Like that was probably one of the other big moments that I remember. So that was a real highlight for you, that moment that you switched across from reserve to full-time service. I guess I'll wind it back a little bit. I had originally joined with the intent of going full-time, but then had some other stuff happen that forced me to rethink that maybe reserves would be a better fit for the time being. I'd always wanted to go join the regular army, but it was just, I took a bit more of a, a longer route to get there. And once you were in, was it what you expected being full-time? Yeah, all through the training, it was it was awesome. Like I was learning new stuff. I was doing the job I did, doing what I wanted to do. I posted out to what was then D Squadron 1st Armoured Regiment, which was at the time the largest subunit in the army. We were tasked with providing the combat, they called it combat mobility to an infantry battalion. So this was at a time when all the mechanized infantry battalions, so five and seven RAR, lost their ability to be either mechanized or motorized. And then that capability was given back to the armored corps to then sort of work with the grunts and provide that capability. So in that sense, it was a really exciting time because we were, we were developing something new, albeit in extremely odd vehicles, but there was still that sense of being at the tip of something that could turn into genuinely use capability. Sounds like things were going well for you. So what then happened over the next two or three years? I got posted to D Squadron in 2013. First two years were just went by in a flash because I was too focused on just training, getting really getting to know my craft, everything. And then in 2015, I got married. I was still doing really well and loving everything up until about October late October when I was injured in a training accident. And then over the course of the next three or four years, everything sort of came to a screeching halt and kind of went backwards, if that makes sense. I lost all the momentum that I'd built up and instead of being able to perform in my job, I, you know, I was relegated to trying to rehab my injury 
because it started to drag out, I guess, it really took a toll on me psychologically, not being able to do the job that I loved and wanted to do. And yeah, I jumped off the bandwagon pretty heavily. You say jumped off the bandwagon pretty heavily. What do you actually mean by that? So as a result of my injury, I was put on some pretty strong medication that I ended up getting borderline addicted to and reliant on. And coupled with the fact that I couldn't do my job, I just, I say I checked out mentally. I just became a depressive, angry wreck. I think one of the big things that actually saved me during that time when I was still in and fighting the injury in the system was as corny as it sounds, getting a dog. At this point in the time, my injury had gotten so bad that I was only really able to work half days. So I was spending half a day at work, not really achieving much, wishing that I was any, anywhere but there. Um, and then I'd come home at lunchtime. Before we got the dog, I'd sit around and go through the motions of living a normal life, filling my time watching Netflix, doing online courses, whatever, not really making much progress and just generally feeling pretty shit about myself. And then we got the dog and that sort of gave me a reason to sort of come home again, just, you know, almost a little bit more. It's going to sound really stupid, but it's a dog. And he gave me sort of that little purpose to come home. And, you know, there was someone who was happy to see me, didn't really give a shit about my state and just was happy to see you as soon as you walked in the door and sad to see you go when you left in the morning. So you've been really honest there about the impact of your injury on your mental state for people that perhaps, you know, might not really understand what it's like when you are going through that period of transition and injury management. Looking back on it now, how would you describe that time? I'd probably say it was pretty shit for me. Um, that would be an understatement. Just there was an endless feeling of hopelessness and despair for me. Just got to a point where I'd wake up in the morning and be, what's the worst that can happen to me for not going to work is that I'll either some of the guys from the unit will rock up and be like, where are you? Why, why aren't you at work? Or I'll end up getting charged and getting disciplined through it. And that in itself just didn't seem like a good enough reason. But for some reason, I dragged my ass out of bed every day and still got to work and then just counted down the hours and just hated everything and hated life. And yeah, just waited for that minute where I could fuck off early and just get back to not really doing anything. What's so remarkable, Oliver, talking to you today is that clearly you went through a very, very black time. And yet today you've got so much life about you, so much energy. So what happened to be able to get you out of that really dark time and get you to where you are right now? Towards the end of, was it, I think it was 2017, I fell into some disciplinary issues at work and ended up copping a pretty hefty fine and some time of confinement on barracks for just a stupid stupid mistake that I made. And by that time I'd really had enough of everything and I just wanted out of like out of the army environment and there was no end in sight that I could see. So with a lot of pushing from me, I was able to get transferred to the soldier recovery center in Adelaide, which is basically where wounded, injured or ill soldiers can go to focus on their recovery to either reintegrate back into their unit as a productive member again, or for the more seriously damaged to focus on their rehab and then medical discharge, which is the path that I took. It was through that that I sort of got a little glimmer of hope again. I was still waiting for Canberra and all the machinations of the army machine to sort of happen and process my discharge. But during that time, I found everybody in the soldier recovery center was sent along to a workshop 
we were pitched it as it was a workshop to develop our CVs and everything. For me, that couldn't have been the worst fit. Basically, one, because I'd been told that you will have to go to it. I was just like, no, nah, fuck this. I don't want to do it. Like, and just pushed back the whole time, coupled with the fact that it was the day after Anzac Day. So already off to a bad start and getting diggers to do anything on that day. So anyway, I still dragged, dragged my ass out of bed, got myself into the city to where we were supposed to be. And it actually turned out to be one of the most useful and I guess empowering experiences I've probably had. It really, this workshop really gave me the sense that even though I'm in this shit place now and all my experiences to me at that point were just fucked and didn't count for anything. But actually that's not the case, that you still have a story to tell. You can still be a valid member of the civilian community even after you get out of the ADF. Now we will say at this point that the workshop that you did was actually a story write workshop. And in fact, that was the first time that you and I met. And in fact, we've been doing lots of work together since in the veteran space. But for people who aren't familiar with your story, tell them a bit more about what happened to you when you discharged and, and really what you're now achieving in the wider community. I discharged in August of 2018. But prior to that, I was on, I'd been put on permanent medical leave for a combination of psychological reasons and surgical because I had, had another surgery and that knocked me out for six to eight weeks. And then on top of that, my mental health just jumped on top of me again. And then it was just out of a sort of, I don't quite know whether it was a moment of clarity or just a moment of feeling like I had nothing to lose. I reached out to one of the board members of StoryWrite at the time and said, is there any way, asked him if there was any way that I could give back to the program because I felt how much it had helped me in so many ways. As it turns out that that actually opened up a public relations internship, which was in line with what I was studying. I, by this point, I'd gotten off my ass and gone back to uni, studying a Bachelor of Marketing and Communications. And this PR internship was a way for me to sort of test my skills, but also, I guess, get back in the saddle again post-discharge. And from then, it's just been, I guess, non-stop. StoryWrite as an organisation has grown from where it was on that post-Anzac Day workshop to now running pretty regular workshops and I've stuck around and now I'm training up to deliver those workshops myself. And I guess through StoryWrite as well, I've managed to land an internship with News Corp for one of the local, local Adelaide rags. And as part of the work you're now doing, I mean, you've become quite a figure in the veteran community here, particularly in the younger veteran community. So tell us a bit more about, about that work and why that's become so important to you. I guess... And it goes back to the whole, I'll call it my story right experience that I had with the workshop because it, I'd had it such a rough trot and such a shit time after my injury. And I realized that story right managed to pull me out of those really dark times, pull me out of the bottom of the bottle, everything like that. And I figure if I can use that as a way to stop other young guys going through the same shit that I had to deal with through the same sort of platform that really, really helped me, then it's worth it. And I just... Yeah, I just think it's just an awesome cause and it's really awesome to see in the workshops that I've been privileged enough to be able to deliver, just seeing everybody else actually take away something, see all the participants actually have their own little light bulb moment and get to know, like actually see the value in what we're teaching. So that's quite, I guess, humbling and heartwarming in a way. So looking to the future now, I mean, you're out in the community. As you say, you've now got an internship with the local RAG here. You're really starting to build this new career for yourself. What do you think is perhaps the key thing that you do want to give back to that younger veteran community for the rest of your career? I guess just a voice and 
to change the perception of not just younger veterans, but veterans in general as not being broken and having something wrong with them. Yes, there might be a few guys that have the scars of war, both mentally and physically or what have you, but they're no less a valid member of the community or no less of a valid employee than the guy standing next to them in the lunch queue. I guess if I can help just one of the younger vets or veterans to realize that they're actually worth something on the on the outside, I guess, then that's me done. Oliver, thank you for sharing your story and for your honesty, particularly in regard to your own experiences that you've had. And particularly, thank you for what you're doing to give back to younger veterans in your community. No worries. Thank you, Sharon. You've been listening to Life on the Line. I'm Sharon Muscledare. Thank you for listening. Learn more about this podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're also on social media. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod, like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.